So the swallows have appeared in at least three or four of my Dharma talks over the years. They appeared in my dreams the other night, and they appeared in the sky a few days ago over the monastery. I stood in the garden and watched. I only saw tree swallows, the barn swallows maybe back, but I'm not sure. Dipping and diving across the sky, dozens of them. And it's always such a relief for me to see them return. I worry about them as they travel thousands of miles and then come back thousands of miles. I watched them and then I went inside the greenhouse for just a moment and when I returned, not a trace. Was it a dream? I had dreamed of them. It didn't seem much different. I had no evidence. They had left no traces of flight paths in the sky. The swallows and I appeared together, disappeared together, one seamless dream happening. Welcome home, swallows, I said aloud to them, even in their disappeared state. Welcome home, Miyoyu. This is a dream. The monastery is a dream. The cinder block buildings, forests, fields, swallows, sky, do not in themselves have a name. We name it and in so doing must maintain that name day after day. We call this place, this dream, a monastery. As long as the Han is sounding, the bells are ringing, the chants being chanted, the oatmeal cooked, and the peanut butter stirred. There will be no such moment when this a place arrives and thus remains solidly as a monastery. It is a monastery because of the perpetual motion, the perpetual co-creation that makes it so. And it is precariously so. We all need to agree. We agree to get the oats cooked, the soap and toilet paper purchased, the blackberries held at bay. A wash-up result, a wash-up revolt, and it's all over. No clean dishes, no food. No food, no monastery. When the last bell sounds, the last han is struck, how long before we say Great Vow was a monastery? How long before it's forgotten altogether? This is a dream we are creating together.
in a way it's a shared dream and in a way the word monastery means something different to each one of us. How that feels in the body, how we respond, what we do. We've created this dream together. We are the dream. There is no dream monastery without dream sitters and cleaners and eaters and blackberry choppers. We imagine ourselves into being, into existing in a particular time and place. This morning, Kisei asked, what else is true? A beautiful invitation into a larger, more inclusive view. One view or dream is that we exist, that we are currently abiding on Quincy Mager Road in Klatskanai, Oregon. There is a map on our phones to prove it. I'm here, I say. You can find me. I'm findable. Just look. Here's this map. Look at that dot on the map and that curvy line. That's Quincy Mager. Here I am. And how quickly and easily that falls apart. It is through persistence and insistence that we create names and places destinations, arrivals, and departures. Klatskanai is just a dream. It is just a bit of empty space within infinite, vast, empty space. It exists as a mirage that we very temporarily all agree on, if you agree that it's Klatskanai. <laughs> you might not a dot on a page or a phone that will itself fall apart and disappear, transform into something else. Someday, even the internet will be gone. And all the facts and proclamations therein. So where do you think you are? Someday, even the internet will be gone. Chosen says, as Zen students, we make our home on groundless ground. How could there be any other home? As Zen students, we recognize this groundless ground as home. the end of an exhale before the turn, that empty space, that pure potential.
the end of an exhale before the turn. I have this idea that session and Zen practice are a lot of work. We have to wear these funny outfits. Finding and resting on that groundless ground is a lot of work. I'm tired and my body is sore from sitting. My mind is straining against its tether. And then I remember, it's day two of Sashin, what else would I expect? What's interesting to note is that Zazen is actually an invitation for deep rest, to open into and as boundless space, to relax the need to be anything or anybody in particular, to soften and expand. What is truly a lot of work is maintaining an identity. It takes constant orienting and organizing of our thoughts, opinions, and preferences. I remember when I was a little kid, a large purple star appeared on the refrigerator. In the middle of the star was a picture of my brother's face. On each point, he had written something about himself. My favorite color is pink. I like math. I play soccer. My favorite animal is a tiger. I think those were all on there. I don't remember the other ones. I remember being a bit in awe of this confidence. How could he possibly know and then so easily proclaim just one color as his favorite? And what if he was wrong? Even then, I was racked with doubt. From a very young age, we start to build a person. We are asked and encouraged to build this person. I'm like this. I live in this place. I do these things. And just like this dreamed up monastery, the only way to maintain this identity of ours is to insist upon it. Insist upon it rather perpetually and obsessively. We do this by telling ourselves the story of I, incessantly, obsessively, over and over, rehearsing the lines of our identity, and and then explaining that identity to other people. I'm like this. I like these things. This is a lot of work. It takes a lot of energy to be somebody. I see this as I sit zazen. Even in the silence of the zendo with my eyes closed, past and future are rehearsed, practiced, stories from fading memories brought back to life, 
future anxieties constructed, repaired, added to. Because without this story, without the constant reminders, who would I be? Where would I be? I think I can safely say that most of us long for reprieve from this exhausting effort. Even for a moment, a brief reprieve. And we search for that in all kinds of different places. Maybe we're experimenting with Sashin. Will Sashin work? Will it relieve me? You have to see for yourself. That longing is so beautiful, so tender and innocent. Let it be just as it is. Let yourself sit with it. During a recent retreat, Jogen Sensei said, the personality is a garden with very strange flowers growing in it. To me, that was an enormous relief. <laughs> Don't worry about the personality so much, especially while we're here this week. We're not here to get things perfect. We're not here to line it up just right. We're not here to find a way to like, to have other people like us better. Let yourself be just as you are. Come here just as you are. As Kisei said yesterday about habits, this isn't an admonition against preferring jazz over classical music. This is an invitation into a bigger view. We can pick up an identity when it's useful. We can enter the play and do our part. And also in recognizing its ephemeral changing nature, be a little more relaxed about its unfolding. So how is this helpful? When I think my identity is solid, lasting, and independent, that goes directly against reality, which is flowing, impermanent, and co-arising. Believing the body to be an unchanging lump, believing the personality to be fixed, and believing we exist somehow as independent observers of an insentient and solid world is painful. And though, although I continue to make assertions in favor of these beliefs, I'm proven over and over again that they simply aren't true. By coming to Sashin, we have given ourselves an opportunity to live life a little more lightly. In the rigors of this container, 
that might not feel true. <laughs> but just explore it. We've given ourselves the opportunity to live life a little more lightly. When we recognize the flowing nature of reality and the flowing nature of identity, we can soften the burden of believing we know who we are and what the world is and what we are supposed to be doing. It's okay to not know. With change as the one thing we can rely on, it's interesting to look at recent studies on how the brain copes with this always flowing reality and our strong desire for certainty. One of the brain's primary functions I've been learning is making predictions. Because there is a small delay in the processing of sensory data, we need to predict a little bit ahead of this delay in order to navigate the world. For example, as you're exiting the zendo, in order to make it out of the door without getting hit by the door, we make the prediction of the movement of the door before we actually are able to register that movement. For moving things, we see them ahead on their path of motion. We predict their path of motion. This helps us understand where an object will be when we get there. In Adam Hantman's view, a neuroscientist, quote, what we experience as consciousness is primarily the prediction, not the real-time feed. The actual sensory information, he explains, just serves as error correction. If you were always using sensory information, errors would accumulate in ways that would lead to quite catastrophic effects on your motor control. Our brains like to predict as much as possible, then use our senses to course correct when the predictions go wrong. But, he adds, we have no way of knowing how our experiences guide our perception. Your brain makes a lot of unconscious inferences, and it doesn't tell you about those inferences. You see whatever you see. Your brain doesn't tell you, I took into account how much daylight I've seen in my life. The daylight comment is referring to a meme you might have seen on the internet about the color of a dress. When shown a picture of a two-tone dress, two camps emerge proclaiming different colors. Maybe many of, many of you saw this. I think it was in 2015. One conclusion of that study was that the color people saw was based on that person's accumulated relationship to natural or artificial light. Those prone to wake up early spent more time in natural light, and those who stay up late spend more time in artificial light. So the brain predicted or came up with the color based on past experiences. Some saw the dress as blue and black, others saw it as white and gold. This color choice scientists believe, and I saw it as like blue and green, so I don't know. <laughs> it might have been my computer. This color choice scientists believe was based on how the light hitting the dress was defined by the brain. So those early risers, saw light hitting the dress and interpreted it as sunlight and therefore saw the dress as white and gold. And the late night people 
interpreted the light as artificial light and saw the dress as blue and black. By unconsciously filtering out the color of light we think is falling on the object, we come to a judgment about its color. So again, your brain makes a lot of unconscious inferences and doesn't tell you that it's an inference. You see whatever you see. Your brain doesn't tell you, I took it into account how much daylight I've seen in my life. So what other inferences are we constantly making? <laughs> we just have no idea is happening. This life is as real as a dream. When we sit zazen, we come to see that we are not only predicting the movement of objects or the color of dresses, but that we are asserting these predictions or assumptions on everything we think, feel, say, and do. We're making assumptions about everything. We have no way of knowing how the accumulation of all our life experiences guide our perception, guide our moment-to-moment -moment predictions on any current happening. We can only ever do the best we can given the very small amount of information we have available. And what's relieving is this is true for everyone. What a strange and interesting dream. We are all doing the best we can given what we are seeing, hearing, feeling, thinking, and believing. What a wonderful opportunity for compassion. We may not agree with other people's interpretation of reality, but from studies like this, we can better understand where it comes from. A prediction-making mind is a mind that craves certainty. We seem to be a species that enjoys a good proclamation or a good declaration of facts. What's so radical about Zen practice is that we are invited to rest back into uncertainty, to take back the proclamation and rest in not knowing. Of course, this isn't easy. How many times before Sashin even began have you told yourself how it would go? How many times have you decided definitively how it's going now and how it will end? Perhaps subtly and not so subtly. Some of us have already composed our closing remarks. When we move through life on autopilot, we're basing our responses on what we anticipate will happen, just like the study said. This is happening in real time. We create worlds within worlds, dreams within dreams, each response, each prediction feeding the next. Prediction and response happening basically simultaneously.
Dogen says, all things leave and arrive right here. Happening only happens now. And we mostly don't have the full picture of what these predictions are based on. Perhaps lifetimes of experience. We certainly don't know how or why other people respond and act the way that they do. So how is this helpful? How is learning about any of this helpful? Anything that helps us to be kinder to ourselves and to other people is helpful. Learning a little bit about how the brain works is a good reminder to be gentle, especially on the second day of session. The inner critic is a seeker of certainty. It makes proclamations and it usually anticipates the worst possible outcomes. The inner critic might say, you're bad at this, you're no good at meditation. And oh, for a mind that longs for definitive answers, there is something depressing and yet very satisfying about such a statement. But sorry, it's not that easy. When we sit zazen, we can watch thoughts like that arise. We can watch the prediction-making mechanisms at work. And the beautiful thing is, we learn that we don't always need to respond in the predictable way. We practice letting in uncertainty. We practice resting in that kinetic space of possibility. And in that space, what dreams may come. It is up to us not to let our expectations become so dense that we cannot see past them. We dream as the dream into the dream. It is up to us to share a dream of wonderment and mystery. And I'll end with a poem. This is by T.K., who is a teacher Jogan is currently studying with. Every moment whispers an invitation and deeper a question. How do you become ready? How do you become ready? There is a book already written inside you, every page and word completed before your parents ever met. Some of its pages hold sunlight, Others tell stories of heartbreak. On one page, an unwed mother holds a baby in her arms, Christ. On another, General Patton leads the Tennessee maneuvers. Now comes you and there are decisions to be made. 
Those pages are not made of materiality, but of intentions dreamed into moments. You are the dreamer. Birth is a falling asleep. At death, you wake into sunlight. You fall asleep in this dream called waking and dream you are in Istanbul. Your body has never left Pittsburgh. In Istanbul, you run a produce store. You haggle over the price of oranges. You fret over this month's bills. Now worry has a hold of you and you can't sleep. But there you are in bed sleeping. Something disturbs your sleep. Coming awake in a groggy state, you feel peevish that you were awakened. Something disturbed your worried sleep. Thank it. Invite that disturbance whose name is the friend. The, quest the deeper question is, how do you become ready?